This is KCBX, Central Coast Public Radio. It's time for Issues and Ideas, a show that features a wide variety of local voices sharing their thoughts and perspectives. Today, we'll get an update on the foundation at Hearst Castle. So we help them with understanding what people are looking at and what people want to see restored or what people want to see done. Also, we'll learn about the San Luis Obispo Coastal Keepers. We can't afford to contaminate our water. We can't afford to waste our water. These stories and more coming up on Issues and Ideas. Good afternoon. It's Monday, September 12th, 2022. I'm Carol Tangeman. Michael Young, CEO for the Foundation at Hearst Castle, shares insights with KCBX's Tom Wilmer about the Foundation's STEAM programs for underserved youth and other greater good missions. Michael Young, Executive Director at the Foundation at Hearst Castle. Tell us about what you are most proud of. At the end of the day, the thing that drives me about what we're doing with the foundation at Hearst Castle is really centered around what we're doing with the underserved communities and bringing these junior high students to the castle to really expand their view of the world and also the view of their potential. That's a long, long story. We could take the entire you know, hour here, but at the end of the day, that's what excites me the most. And using Julia Morgan, as an amazing example of how young women can learn how to overcome barriers and really just empower themselves. Uh, Julia Morgan truly was an inspiration, one of the greatest women engineers and architects in the history of our country. If you think about it, central to your program is STEAM. That's right. And she embodies every element of STEAM. That's right. And so does the castle. STEAM, what is that? It's science, technology, engineering, art, and math. And you hear STEM a lot because art is left out in so much. Art has been left out in so much of the curriculum in our grammar schools, in our high schools. And so what we're trying to do is there's no better place to insert the A with art than Hearst Castle. And when you talk about STEM... There's no better place to bring kids to see in person how STEM works. So just the road going from the bottom of Highway 1 up to where the castle is, just the engineering, the math that all went into that. We could go on and on about all the different things that the castle brings to light. Steam, I think in a way that no other place does because then you can go across highway one and you learn about science about how oceanography and marine biology and all the things that go into what exists and lives just right across highway one from Hearst Castle so that's what excites me the most but also what excites me is if we don't preserve Hearst Castle if we don't keep it pristine in a way that inspires people, then we can't inspire young people, we can't inspire anybody. So that's why the restoration and preservation is so important. But all of our hearts kind of bleed for when we see these young kids come from places that they've never gone 10 square miles outside their little pod. One of your primary targets are the agricultural communities in Mm -hmm. the Salinas Valley. Mm -hmm. So these are ag family kids that, like you said, have never 
being out of their mm. zone in their life. Well, not only the Salinas Valley, but, but even larger, the San Joaquin Valley, uh-huh. all within a two-and-a-half, three-hour-mile bus ride. And that's really, at this moment, where we kind of have to exist. We're working on some programs. We're going to be able to bring kids from places like Oakland and South Central L.A. to where we can bring a whole nother group of underserved kids. And we're in the midst of figuring out how we have have them here for 24 hours, right? Because these kids that are coming from King City and Salinas and Visalia and Hanford and all these other places, they can be here in two hours, two and a half hours. A day trip. It's a day trip. But to bring some of these kids from some of these other demographics and some of these other areas, it's exciting. Some of the things we're talking about from teaching them how to camp, you know, so not only are they coming to see this amazing place and learn about steam, but now they're going to learn to camp for the first time and learn about what it's like to be outdoors. So these are all things that we're working on. And um, this is all central to the mission of the foundation at Hearst Castle. Yes, it and is. And so those who support you and become members, the income brought in goes right out the back door to fund the school bus ride, to fund all the ancillary ingredients needed to bring school groups here, correct? Yeah, the simplest way to to put it is that 50 cents on every dollar that our very generous donors and members provide, 50 cents is going to go towards the restoration and preservation of this gem that we have, which I can't even believe is a state park. Let me interject for a moment, because this is something that a lot of people aren't aware of. The income that Hearst Castle State Park generates and brings in it all does not stay there There that's true there are other state park entities that draw from that wealth of income no and that's a really good point and thank you for bringing that up but yeah the revenue that comes in to hearst castle uh, which is significant unfortunately it doesn't all stay there Mm -hmm. i mean only a very small portion of it stays there the rest of the money goes back to sacramento and then they redistribute it to several of the state parks across Central California. And that's awesome. I mean, we all take great pride in that. But the hard thing is that we still, you know, uh, we have to go out and fundraise to take care of things that are not budgeted. And therein lies the existence of the foundation. That's right. And in expanding our mission by bringing this, this youth education program for underserved students and underserved school districts that has to be fully funded by our donors. That is not something that state parks can fund. Mm-hmm. So that is why this fundraising is so, so important. Talk to us a moment about some of the income that you bring in from your members of the foundation. And you put on these cool events, like a dinner in the mm-hmm. nighttime at Hearst Castle, or swimming in the pool. Talk mm-hmm. to us about that. Well, that was something that I really do thank California State Parks for. This is something that they really did need to provide a process for us to be able to access some of these amazing opportunities that lie within Hearst Castle, right? And this wouldn't have happened unless they would have approved this. And so we're able to provide to our donors experiences that are priceless. And that's one unique thing about this nonprofit is there's a lot of amazing nonprofits out there that have wonderful missions, 
But the unique thing about where we are is we have the ability to give to our donors unique experiences like swimming in the Neptune pool, like swimming in the Roman pool, which is the indoor pool at Hearst Castle. I'm Sergeant Mullins with California State Parks. It's even special for me to be up here. Everybody seems very happy to be here, and it's a very special experience. It's not your average pool. <laughs> My name is Rick Wolf. I've been on the uh, foundation board for about three years now. Coming to these pool swims, it's just absolutely magical. You check in people that are just smiling from ear to ear, and they're here as a bucket list. But more than that, it's just the grounds. Everything about this place is magical. I didn't know anybody could ever swim in the pool. The state allows us to use the pool, you know, four or five times a year for the Neptune pool and four or five times for the Roman pool. Do you bring your family, wife, kids? Well, I brought my wife tonight because she has gone through a lung transplant two years ago and she's starting to fail again. And I, you know, coming up here and to watch the sunset at the castle, there's nothing like it. And just how happy the people are here, getting people, checking them in today. And one woman goes, hey, can I bring a blow-up swan? And I said, heck yeah, come on, bring that thing. She's out in the water right now and just having a blast. Marissa Freeman. Marissa, where are you from? From here originally. I moved to LA for work. Once I found out that this was a thing, I immediately donated. So you're a member of the foundation? I am a member of the foundation, and then I decided to do the pool thing. Mm -hmm. And I think it will be a yearly thing now. And everyone here is just so nice. They're really nice. They're talkative, which is good for me because I came by myself. There you go. <laughs> I'm Lucia Cantor St. Amour. You and your husband, Frank, decided to come all the way from San Francisco area. Especially when I read about the STEAM program and I said, oh, finally somebody put the A in STEM. And I said, yes, we will be there. If it's to support the STEAM program, <laughs> we will be there because that A for art is the first thing that goes. This is the castle that William Randolph Hearst built out of the castles and estates in, in Europe. And that's what he modeled it after. And it's right here. Truly a transformative experience. You know, you hear the stories and you see the old photographs of the parties that he had here with Joan Crawford and Cary Grant and I think Charlie Chaplin was probably the most frequent guest and just to be supporting something that is so terribly important as well. Hi I'm Frank Latuka. We got invited to come up here to swim in the Neptune pool and it's unbelievable. Literally like being transported in time. You go into the old dressing rooms, you get changed, you come down here, people are swimming in the pool. Next to the pool, it's all lit up. I mean, we saw the sunset. It's just a special, special place. Come back and do it again? Oh, in a heartbeat. Like being able to go up to Hearst Castle and having the most amazing, incredible experience that is one of the most authentic recreations of what it was like to be a guest of William Randolph Hearst both the Neptune pool swims, the Roman pool swims, but also what we call the dinner in a movie, where you come up, you have your most amazing private tour, then you go into the Casa del Mar, the guest house that Hearst lived in when he was older. We set up the sunroom, which he loved so much. We set up the sunroom as a dining room. We have a five-course meal paired with all of the local wines from the Paso Robles region. As you see the sunset go into the Pacific Ocean, after all of that, we then walk you across the grounds 
to her private theater where he screened all of the movies with the legends like Clark Gable, Charlie Chaplin, all of these people. We sit in those exact seats at that exact theater and watch a time period movie of our guest's choice. And we've seen everything from Charlie Chaplin movies to Citizen Kane to The Wizard of Oz to, you know, all these different classic movies that our guests choose. And they're the very same ones that William Randolph would have... That they all saw in those... That they all had seen in in that movie where he entertained his guests. About as close to time travel as you'll ever get. Yeah. And you know, it's an interesting story, so I'll, I'll share this with you as well. So, and it just continues. So I got a call from... Adam Weissmuller, who was Johnny Weissmuller's grandson. And he said, you know, Michael, he goes, I have this treasure trove of photos and gold medals and all these things surrounding my grandfather. And one of his favorite places on earth was Hearst Castle. Because I have all these incredible pictures of him at the castle in the pool with all these amazing starlets. I mean, you know, Johnny Weissmuller was Tarzan, for goodness sakes, and probably one of the greatest swimmers ever in the world. I mean four or five time gold medalist, et cetera, et cetera. He said, I would love to come up and experience what my grandfather did. Mm-hmm. And so he's becoming a member of the castle. But, oh, what is, cool. but what is so fun is the story he shared with me. He said, so my grandfather told me this story. He said, Hearst had been building this outdoor pool and he'd gone through a couple reiterations or different designs. You know, he'd design it, he'd knock it out, redo it. And so he was so excited that Johnny Weissmuller was coming to visit. This is right after the Olympics, right after he'd won his three or four gold medals. And so Johnny Weissmuller jumps in the pool and does three or four laps. And Hearst is just anxiously waiting to hear his review of the pool. And he jumps out and Hearst says, so what do you think? And Johnny Weissmuller says, it's too short. And so that's how legend is... Three months later, he shut it down, broke it, and expanded it to the shape that it's in currently. Interesting. I wondered. And how cool his grandson's going to be up at one of our swims here in September. Yeah, keep me posted on that. Right? That's incredible. Yeah. How cool. So that's just, I mean, there's so many stories like that. A little bit more. What's closest to your heart? Some of the benefits of somebody becoming a member of the foundation Mm -hmm. at Hearst Castle. The thing that comes to mind is what I said earlier is people are passionate about the castle. People are passionate about preserving art. People are passionate about Julia Morgan. And that is one of the great stories that has still not been fully told. And so what's so nice is when these generous donors and members provide us these funds to fund youth education program, to fund our preservation efforts. A moment on the preservation initiatives. Mm. So through one of the large grants that we got, the indoor pool, which is called the Roman pool, which is just beyond spectacular. I mean, it's, it's impossible to describe until you're actually in there and you're looking at the ceiling and you're looking down at the pool, which is reflecting the ceiling, which gives this, all this was designed. It's just impossible to even describe. But through some of our efforts, a lot of our efforts, that preservation is going on right now, which was probably a good 10 to 15 years away from actually uh, that 
process being started. And because of the funds that we've been able to generate, that indoor Roman pool will now once again be restored to what it was. Can the foundation come up with a priority of what the foundation would like to see restored? Well, we're a cooperative association with California State Parks, and they've been very, very cooperative in allowing us to kind of, you know, appreciative, right? And and very appreciative of what we do. But at the end of the day, they're the ones that drive the priorities. But what's really nice is it's been a collaborative effort because we kind of hear from the general public, as they do as well. But we all know when you're overseeing such a large swath of property that stretches from, you know, Napomo to, you know, basically San Simeon and beyond, um, it's hard to kind of get the beat of what people really want. So we kind of help them with understanding what people are looking at and what people want to see restored or what people want to see done. And they've been wonderful in listening to, to us. That's cool. Michael Young, to learn more about the foundation website. So it's the foundation at hearstcastle.com. So the foundation at hearstcastle.com. We have a YouTube channel. We show you what we do with the youth education program. We show you what we're doing with our restoration. It's a great way to look at all the events that are out there. And we have so many unique events. I mean, uh, I don't, Tom, I, I don't think you were there. We were, we did an amazing tour and hike of the original San Simeon village. Oh, wow. And it was incredible. It was with, with Victoria Kastner, who was one of the foremost historians about Hearst Castle. And basically, we walked through physically how the whole thing came together, how Hearst built San Simeon, and how he utilized that village and that bay to create Hearst Castle. It was one of the most magical events, and we yeah. do things like that all the time. I met you at the Hacienda, which yeah, very Liga. few, which at 100, Fort Hunter Liggett, yeah. which very few people know about, and everybody should see. It is truly one of these gems that are just hidden, and yeah. thank goodness to people like you, you expose these things. And, and that was William Randolph Hearst Ranch headquarters, correct? Yes. Yeah. Well, the Hacienda was actually a little correction. He built that because they used to take horseback rides from Hearst Castle all the way to basically Highway 101. So they went, you went from Highway 1 to 101, which Hearst owned everything in between. And he got frustrated because there was no place for people to stay. So he'd have to pick up people, whether it be you know, with cars, whether it be other ways. He actually would sometimes fly people back, but he wanted a place where people could stay after that long horseback ride and enjoy themselves. And so that's why he built the Hacienda. And therein lies the Marion Davies suite upstairs. That's right. There was always a Marion Davies suite. (laughs) I don't get into that. I don't get into gossip here. We're into inspiration. We're not into gossip. (laughs) All right. Michael Young, thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. And thank you for letting your listeners know about one of the most authentic recreations of what it was like to be a guest of William Randolph Hearst and to throw yourself back into the 20s and 30s. That's not easy to do anymore. And that's something that you can do here. Time travel. Time travel. Yes. I love that. We're time travelers now. I'm your host, Tom Wilmer, reporting from San Simeon, California. We'll see you at Hearst Castle.
My name is Roseanne Cash. NPR is all I listen to. And if I didn't have NPR, I would feel like my lifeline to the world has been cut. So yes, please support your local NPR station. And now, the nonprofit story. This is Dr. Consuelo Mukes, your host, and I'm excited today to bring to you Gordon Hensley, who is the executive director of the San Luis Obispo Coastal Keepers at the Environment in the Public Interest. Gordon, welcome to the nonprofit story. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Brucey has a master's degree in ecology and systematic biology from California Polytech State University. And he's on environmental issues and biological studies throughout California Central Coast. But you are here to tell us about the organization here in our area that helps us with our Central Coast. So what is the environment in the public interest and the slow coastal keepers? Well, we are, uh, we're a nonprofit organization, uh, and we deal with um, various aspects of permitting and the government process around land use, water issues, and the habitats that are supported there. And you do this on a science-based approach to advocate public trust, resource protections, and you do that in front of government agencies. And so what exactly is your daily work with this? Because the permitting process is at least semi-legal, in the end, the various government processes, there's always the option to move ahead to court. So what we're doing is doing the field work to collect the data to build a case in case we go to court. Mm-hmm. However, my lawyers aren't real happy about it, but um, I'm planning to go to court for every project we take on. I'm hoping we never go to court. That's my lawyer's business plan. <laughs> I got that. Let's say that we were keeping an eye on stormwater relative to a, a particular facility, typically a parking lot or something, hmm. and we start testing the water for contaminants and you know get the lab work done, and then we compile the field data collected, use that as the basis of our comments as the permits move forward, or in the case of stormwater, they may already have a permit and we're going after a violation of their permit. We need to be able to establish that there really is a problem. It's not just that we don't like these guys or that we're upset about the color of their building or something. Okay, let's uh, kind of break it down a little bit. What area do you cover and how do you find out about some of these issues? Well, actually, we're pretty wide ranging. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, In San Luis Obispo County, we function primarily as the San Luis Obispo Coast Keeper, connected to the larger Waterkeeper Alliance, and that is pretty strictly water quality focused. Mm-hmm. Then, in addition, we'll get involved with land use permits when the EIRs start rolling out. It's an environmental impact report, and we will attempt to, at the very minimum, get the EIR and the environmental work that's going into the project shaped in a way that actually protects the environment. Mm -hmm. So Um, do you monitor those as they come out? Is that how you know? Yeah. We've been relocating our buildings, so things are in a little bit of of upheaval right now. But traditionally, we have done a, a weekly newsletter that goes out to our 
email list. And what happens is over the course of the week, I'm going through all of the public agencies that are meeting in the next coming week, go through their agendas. I'm looking for items to put on our email that I know are of interest to at least someone on our email list. Not all of the items are probably of interest to all of the people, but we're shooting for at least someone was interested in that issue, and we can provide enough information that if they wanted to show up to the public meetings, they'd be prepared to address the issues of concern. Mm -hmm. Who would be the type of people on the email list? The neighbors or (laughs) or other people who feel the impact. I see. Prior to running the nonprofit, I was partners in an environmental consulting firm. It was a bit of a surprise to me. We did the biology part of the environmental impact reports. Mm. And it was a surprise to me that from the time we would walk on somebody's ranch and do our surveys, it was probably 10 years before the bulldozers showed up. Hmm. However, most of the neighbors give us a call when the bulldozers show up. Interesting. (laughs) So it's good for us to keep an eye on the agendas of what is going on with the planning commission, with the board of supervisors, with the water board, and kind of get ahead of the game so that we're able to give a heads up to the people of concern. Occasionally we come across uh, permit uh, items or, or agenda items that really aren't our bailiwick, but I have contact with the other environmental groups and we can say, hey, do you, are you aware that the water board's going to hear about this pretty soon or the air board's going to hear about this? Hmm. And as citizens, sometimes we just feel like we just don't get that information. And so when the bulldozers show up, we mm-hmm. know something's going on. Yeah, you know something's going on. That's right. Right. Uh-huh. So what are you really looking for? I mean, what are you pr- protecting and helping mm-hmm. with? It depends project by project. If, say, one of our local ranches is considering uh, a housing development or maybe going under grapes or something else, we're looking for what are the potential environmental impacts there? Are uh, are they likely to contaminate water, Mm. air? Um, Are they... Uh, do we do we know or is it possible to discover that there are endangered species or protected species or species of special concern? Are they going to cut down all of the trees and we're going to want to have to say something about the timing of that and the, uh, the, the, the possibility of the use of that part of the habitat by birds or raptors, bats or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, and get our input into the permit so that we, as the development moves ahead, they can stay within the bounds of the law. Mm-hmm. So you're broader than just water. Oh, yeah. You're looking at all of the environmental issues. Yeah. You have another program called Life on the Edge and one that's called Government and People. Well, the Life on the Edge one is uh, my attempt to be clever in that we live on the edge of the continent. <laughs> mm-hmm. And at the edge of the continent <laughs> is the interface between the marine environment and the upland environment. And so we deal with projects that are happening in those environments. What about the government and people project? We've addressed those issues as groups in the community have come to us. One in particular was a group that is no longer uh, functioning 
well, maybe they are, but not as an organized group. That group was called Living in America, and it was Latinos. They were not all all new immigrants to the U.S. Some of them were, had been here a little longer, but the idea was coming from Mexico and or South America, the government structures are completely different there, as we all know. Mm-hmm. And so that project involved the sheriff's department and various other people from the community that had particular background and expertise in, as not a native, how do you make the government work for you? And my role, because of the work with with the various agencies and permitting, was to kind of walk them through how the democratic process works and how the permitting and and addressing the government is done. Mm -hmm. You know, in other countries, you're risking your life if you speak up. That's true. If you are just joining us, this is The Nonprofit Story. I'm Dr. Consuelo, your host, and I'm speaking with Gordon Hensley. He is the executive director of the San Luis Obispo Coastal Keepers at the Environment in the Public Interest. Gordon, you're talking about interfacing with the citizens to make sure that they also have the proper information to find out how to protect themselves. How do people get in touch with you? Well, we're a small town. They either accost me in the grocery store (laughs) or they call our phone line or they Mm -hmm. maybe have had some interaction with one of the other nonprofits that knows what we do. And so there's there's a reference uh, framework of how people get in touch with us. Some get on our email list, and then we have a web page. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's very functional, but it's there. It'll get there. Right. <laughs> it'll get. It'll it'll get. It'll arrive. Yes. Exactly. So let's go just a little bit deeper into some of the work that you do, especially with the water situation here in our county. Should we be concerned about clean water? And we're in a drought, and uh, we need to make sure we have good drinking water as well as for agriculture? Well, I don't really see any of the ones that we work with as a hierarchy. All of them are serious. We can't afford to contaminate our water. We can't afford to waste our water. We can't afford to, you know, pump down all our water. This is a rough time with climate change, and I think many people are becoming aware that we may not be able to depend on the reservoirs that we have. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to, you know, this is going to take a lot of struggle and probably tense and heated discussions with the government entities that control and plan and help the society move forward. Mm-hmm. You are on the forefront of all types of issues that are going on. One thing I wanted to ask you about were the forever chemicals and the PFAS situation. Mm-hmm. What do you tell us about that? Yeah, that that is, in, in a lot of ways, we're still fortunate in that we're not a big urban area or a big mm-hmm. industrial area, but it's not that we're not without difficulties. Usually I'll, I'll get a phone call from somebody who says, we're seeing discharge from this plant, and mm-hmm. they do something. They work with wood, or they're working with possibly chemicals, paint, or something. And we're concerned about you know, what we can see of their stormwater system or of their runoff. There's some concern. Mm-hmm. And so we'll go out, take our little water kits with us, and go collect some water. And 
prepare it and get it off to the lab and we'll come back with some kind of answer as to something's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, then from there, it's a matter of, well, are we going to go talk to the owner and see if we can get this handled at that level? Or are we going to go talk to the water board or hmm. the d- Department of Toxics or something? And, you know, what, what exa- how exactly are we going to handle this? Mm-hmm. What about the sea level rising? On one hand, we're looking at our water health. And on the other hand, we have the sea level rising. Okay. How is that affecting us here in our area? The Coastal Commission has a project going on called the King Tide Project. And anybody can participate in that. You go on the Coastal Commission web page, mm-hmm. and you'll find the King Tide project. And what that consists of is that on the King Tide dates, and pe- for people who don't know, King Tide is just a name for twice a year we'll get extraordinarily high tides. Mm-hmm. And If you remember your junior high science, it has to do with the location of the moon and the orbit of the earth. We'll we'll get high tides a couple times a year. So the people who who are interested just spend the day or that, well, actually, it only takes a few hours because the tide is up and down. Mm -hmm. At the peak of the tide, Coastal Commission wants photographs georeferenced of those things. Here, I think... For a lot of reasons, San Luis Obispo is still a protected bubble, not as it was when I was a child, but nevertheless, here, I think we still have enough open land that, based on the projections of sea level rise that are that seem to be rolling out, we've got enough space, I think, for the ocean to intrude hmm. without wiping out communities or a lot of houses or businesses. Great. But I, <laughs> I can see that there are some difficult areas that the planning people and the government entities are going to have to be thinking about, and I don't have any reason to think that they're not. The Pismo Beach, Shell Beach, where all the hotels are along the cliff, I would think that as sea level rise comes, there's going to have to be some thought about what are you going to do, how are you going to adapt, how are you going to retreat, or how are you going to deal with that? Hmm. We've already had, in the past 10 years, cliff erosion problems in Pismo Shell Beach. Mm-hmm. And th- I think that's going to be a bit of a problem. On King Tide Days, I particularly am watching Morro Bay. And we get in the kayak and we get out at high tide and take pictures of the tide water running into the community's drain pipes. Mm. Seawater is denser than freshwater. So I'm wondering, when that pipe is full of seawater, where's your drain water going to go? I don't think that there is a force coming down any of those pipes that's going to be strong enough to push the Pacific Ocean back. So I'm expecting that those are going to bubble up in other parts of the street. And all of that is in a big ball of concern for the infrastructure in probably every community. How can people find out about your website? See, our website is <laughs> horrible. It is That's Epicenter okay. <laughs> Online, E-P-I-C-E-N-T-E-R, online.org. 
Okay. That's epicenteronline.org. Yeah. You even have a pledge to support trash free waters by 2030 that people can download. Yeah. Do they help us to keep aware of what's going into the water? Yeah, it's an awareness project. And at the appropriate times, it gives me a number of citizens that I can display in front of the various organizations, the Board of Supervisors, and say, this many people are concerned about this. Right. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you also have an internship program. Yes. How's that going? Well, COVID has kind of been a detour for it. One, because the kids for a while were not really on campus. Now that they are on campus, there's nervousness about coming off of campus, Mm -hmm. coming back on campus, and testing positive. It has some problems, but generally when it is running normally, I have between four and six interns a quarter, and they generally come from the biology department, the natural resources, the environmental management out of the NRM program. I've had a really interesting connection with the engineering department. The engineering students, a couple of classes, built us a remote sensing monitoring project for keeping an eye on the marine protected areas. And it was part of a larger project, but it was kind of a pilot project on whether this idea of teaming a radar system with a camera system, basically a more sophisticated ring doorbell. Hmm. So the idea was we were monitoring the vessel traffic in the MPA. So just trying to get an idea of now that the MPAs have been established, how is this space being used? Mm -hmm. So the students really get to have some great hands-on work. My promise to them is we are going to pad up your resume so that when you graduate, you might have a little edge on the competition. And just the last thing there, I think you wouldn't mind having some donations from the community to help with the work. Is that true? Yes. Our, yeah, our support is primarily grants, contributions from our membership, and you would expect that we get contributions when we're called in on a project. Those people who are interested, annoyed, fired up about it, they, they may put in some money to keep that going. And your site even says that those donations help protect the rivers, streams, bays, and the coast that Californians and our environment depend on. And you do an incredible work, and I hope people will get to your website. And again, just tell us that website one last time. Epicenteronline.org. And this has been The Nonprofit Story. I'm Dr. Consuelo Mukes. I've been speaking with Gordon Hensley. He is the San Luis Obispo Coastal Keepers Executive Director, and they are at the Environment in the Public Trust. Thank you. Artisan salami is rare, so we are lucky on the Central Coast to have the only artisan salumieri between San Francisco and San Diego. Alapia has been providing us with delicious salumi for over 10 years, and playing with food, got to see how it's done. This episode is from the KCBX archives and originally aired in March of 2021.
This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. I'm Father Ian Dellinger, and I'm playing with food. We are very lucky to have a salumiere on the Central Coast. I have known about Alapia's products since moving here. What I didn't know is that the artisan salumi is somewhat rare. A quick search revealed that there are artisan salumieres in San Francisco and in Berkeley, one might expect. Then the others I found were in Petaluma, north of San Francisco, and in Oceanside, down south. So we are very lucky. Central Coast food snobs have been throwing around the term salumi as if they know what it means. So let me clarify what it means. According to California chef Pete Balistreri, the difference between salumi and salami is, salami is one of the many items that fall under the umbrella of salumi, like guanciale, lardo, and prosciutto. All of these items are types of salumi. Salumi is a general term, but salami is a specific type of product. Now that that's cleared up, let me take you on the salumi journey that Alex took me on at his salumeria in Atascadero. As with many of my journeys, we are on location in a salumi factory, and the noises that come with making great salumi are part of the experience. So my name is Alex Pellini, and I'm a salami maker. We opened the Alepia about 10 years ago, exactly 10 years ago, it was 2011. Me and Antonio, Varia, owner of Buona Tavola, were making salami in the restaurant at that time, and people really enjoy it. We want to make more so we can sell to stores, some restaurant in the area, and winery, because at that time, actually, winery were not having any food at the tasting room. So we decided to open a small salami plan, and that was the first step. Now we have a bigger facility and store. So we're doing pretty good and we are happy about our product that is very focused in quality, uh, small batches and authenticity. Okay. I was born in Italy and lived there for 27 years. Then I moved to London for one year, get some experience, learn English. And then I call Antonio, my uncle, and uh, ask him if he had a spot for me at the restaurant. And I start to bartending there. And I still work at the restaurant as assistant manager. I'm from north of Italy, Piemonte. Cure meat is a very important part of the meal up there before dinner, between lunch and dinner, anytime. We have a culture of cure meat and good food. I've been to Italy a couple times, and one time I went to Spoleto, and every time we went for a pre-dinner glass of wine, it came with a plate of salami. <laughs> yes. We would say, no, 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 we're going to dinner, we're going to dinner, and they would have... <laughs> oh yes, that's like a kind of an aperitif part, you know, before dinner we had this pre-dinner, cold cuts, cheese, and that is what we start our appetite. Yeah, off. get your yeah. stomach going. Yeah, get exactly. And so did you bring your recipes for your salami from Italy? So we have the base of making salami with the family every winter with my grandfather, Antonio's father. We will slaughter a couple of pigs and make some salami sausages for the family. So we have the base recipe starting from our heritage and then we add some new flavor, something a little bit more spicy that is coming from southern of Italy, a paprika that we import from that area, Calabria, to make the spicy Calabrese salami. Mm-hmm. We make the finocchiona, it's a Toscan style with fennel seeds. And then we have our Parolo, Cacciatorino and Nostrano that are classic Northern Italian salami with not too much spices, but very good flavor. You can taste the wine in it, some cracked pepper, simple but good. We have a specialty product, particular called Anduia. 
is a salami spread. We put salami in a jar, pretty much. It's lightly spicy, it's spreadable, you can serve it for appetizer with bread, or you can make a nice pizza with that, serve it with burrata, mozzarella. So this spread, we have the idea, of course, from the original Calabrese and Duya, but modified and make it in our way, Alepia style. Alepia is very important meaning for us. It's coming from my grandmother, first and last name. Her name is Alesina Maria Pia, so Alepia. She passed away in 2011 when then we decided to open the salami plan and thinking about her. So can I see how you make salami? Yes, of course. Okay. Yes, I show you the whole process. Great. This way. How fun. So we're going to the, where the magic happened, the production area. All right. This is the production area. Today we stuff in salami. We use beef casings, it's natural, it's tough inside the meat and tied is all by hand using a string that we import from Italy because we cannot find the other same. Made up of hemp and nylon. It's a thin and it's very resistant. They don't make it because here they don't make salami. So this is the meat for the soppressa. Soppressa is a product with paprika, garlic, lightly spicy, very popular. There hanging we have some finocchiona, fennel seeds and chianti wine. These look a lot bigger than what I buy. Yes. When we stuff the product to the end of the process after one month, we lose 50% of the weight. Wow. So that is because dry aging process. So the salami are going to two different steps. First, after Thai fermentation, where we drop the pH, reach a higher temperature, the starter culture start to work. And after two days, this fermentation process, the salami have been tested for pH and they're moving in the aging rooms. I thought salami was just dried meat, like a dried sausage. But you're saying there is a culture in there that ferments? The yes, yes, it's a starter culture that contains the bacteria that are used to protect the meat during the drying and fermenting process. If I ground up some meat, put spices in it, put it in a casing and try to dry it, it would kill me. Yes, it will go rancid, you cannot eat it. Okay. Also because you need the right temperature, there is a lot around making salami that people doesn't know. That's good to know. I will yeah. not try to make salami at home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's why probably we are only salami makers between San Diego and San Francisco in the central coast. We're the only one because it's not something that you wake up in the morning and say, let's make salami like you make sausage. Fermenting room, as you can see the salami are wet, they're gonna have a high humidity during this fermentation process, losing water, and then come out in a couple of days. So we have to go back in the process to start from the beginning. So the meat is coming fresh every week from Iowa and Colorado. We require fresh meat, never frozen, and it's not easy to get it, but we have a truck coming every Friday. So the next week we use it in about four or five days like they do in Italy, our grandparents. So that is a flavor profile that will come out when you taste the product. Why don't you get your meat from California? Because there is not a blend that can guarantee us the freshness. They will send it to us frozen. We require that hormone-free natural meat. And we even find that it's too small for what we need, the amount of weight that we need. So you fall in between the small producers and yes. the large corporate cattle and pig production in California. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. 
Correct. After we receive the meat, we trim the meat, taking it off the nerves, the blood clot, clean the meat best possible, get ready to the grind. And then after grind, the meat is going to the mixer, where we mix with the ingredients, the flavor, wine, garlic, and we let it sit in a walk-in refrigerator overnight. The day after, we stuff and tie the salami. The tying process is very important. You learn how to tie a salami after six months of training because there is a lot of manuality, a lot of feeling. Yeah, the casing are natural, so easy to break, but you don't want to leave the salami too soft because air can go in and then become oxidated. This is the art that we transpass from our grandfathers to us and we give it to our employee. You need to have experience, very much experience to make a good salami. This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio, and you're listening to Issues and Ideas. I'm Father Ian, learning lots about salami with Alex in Atascadero. As we moved on to the next stage, the background noise got a lot quieter, and the process of making salami became much more evident that it's not simply drying out a sausage. Use a beef casing. Is that for both pork salami and beef salami? We don't make beef salami. So we just make pork salami. The only beef is the casing. It's a classic northern Italian to make pork salami. So now they're in their casing, they're hung. What next? The salami, the end of the day, will be all go inside the fermentation for two days. After that two days, we test the pH. When is the right pH that USDA require? We move it to dry aging rooms. So this is our packaging and aging room area. Aging room are important from Italy as well. They have a big engine on the back that control humidity and temperature. So we reproduce the basement that we were uh, used in Italy when we were making salami. So that temperature, that humidity that make the mold growing on the salami because mold is a very important part of the salami as well. So we go room number three, where we start. Yes, 52 Fahrenheit. These beautiful rooms with our salami that are start to losing weight, start to dry. You can see mold is growing and that is good. Some nice white mold for flavor profile. I've always wondered about the white stuff. Tell me more about the mold, because I didn't actually know that it was mold. Mold is growing naturally on the product with the humidity. If you go in Italy and you go to an artisanal deli or a salami maker, you see salami with mold. Is normal. Actually, you can eat it. You know, you can slice. You don't have to peel it. I peel it, you know, just to taste the meat. But a lot of people they want to have that profile, and the casing is natural. You can eat it. Like I most of the time I peel it. Yeah. We keep it in the first aging room for ten days, about seven to ten. Then we move it in the second room where they stay up to 20 days until they are ready to come out. Why do you have to move it to a different room? Because when I go in here, more wet, the humidity is higher, so the room runs faster. Then we move it to a room that is going slower, just to keep the product aging little by little and the product are more dry. And then after these 20 days, we test the water activity. So the content of water is good to go for USDA regulation and taste it ourselves, make sure that our the way we want, and go to packaging, yes. i show you another beautiful room here. Guanciali, pancette, the whole muscle room. Wow. So we have a coppa, that is pork shoulder cure, like prosciutto. We have a pancetta, it's a cured pork belly. And we have guanciale. Guanciale is a pork jowl. We started to make it about two, three years ago. People were thinking, here were thinking we were crazy, why we do jowl. 
nobody eat it. Now is the product that we sell more than everything else, even more than salami. It was really interesting. I was watching a TV show that used that, and I was like, I'm never gonna find that on the Central Coast. The next day, I was in the grocery store, and I looked down, and there it was. I was like, oh my gosh, I can make this recipe <laughs> that I thought was with this ingredient that you probably wouldn't even be able to find in the U.S. Right, so what do you find out that day? A lot of people find out as well, because we start to get online order for this product, and you know, in general, even pancetta, because you can substitute pancetta with guanciale, but the classic amatriciano carbonara pasta in Rome, for example, is made with guanciale. So chef discovered that, and they call us from New Jersey, from New York, San Francisco, they all want our guanciales. You talk about testing, you have to test it in the fermentation for the pH, and then you have to test it for its water content in this room. Yes. In a typical batch of, say, your regular retail salami, like the Barolo, how many go to waste because of testing? There are not, actually, because I know that after that amount of days, that can be 20 to 28, the product reaches the right water activity content. Plus, if it's happened, you know, happened before that I slice one is a little bit above, at that point, the product is ready to eat, at least for me, maybe not for USDA, but in Italy with salami that are much more softer than you find salami here. So for me, are good anytime to eat. So that one, I keep and slice it and eat it, and USDA stay with me and eat something. What I do, I go in and touch it. See the consistent feeling and I know when it's ready. It's not all about instruments, it's about... No, the instruments are just actually for show and check, but the feeling and the experience is what we base on a lot. This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio, and you're listening to Issues and Ideas. I'm Father Ian with Alex Pellini, who makes Artisan Salumi in Atascadero. So it comes out of here, it goes to packaging. Where do you do your packaging? Packaging right here. David is packaging right now some of our pre-slice product. We send it to a company that pair our salami with a wine and they do shipment. It's like a club. They like our product to pair with their wine. We do this program also for wineries around here because it's easy for people to grab the package and already slice. So is that the end of the process then? Have I seen everything? Yes, yes. you can see we use wine for the product. We have some nice Chianti for the Finocchiona and our Cacciatorino salami. Uh, we infuse with garlic and then let it sit for a few hours and then strain with a cheesecloth in the meat so the garlic doesn't go directly but the flavor in the wine. We have Mondavid Zinfandel for the soppressa. We have Nebbiolo, that is the grapes that you make Barolo with from Lange for our Barolo salami. Okay. Very good wines. Okay. It was time for the big request. Then some additional information as we went back to the store. Can I taste some salami? Yes, of course. Like, yeah, we don't do tasting right now, but for you, I will. Uh, we'll get this, we'll go back to the point. Okay. You wanna... I'll carry that for you. Yeah, thank you. There we go. So you import a lot of your ingredients. Yes, actually, the spices are local. Okay. Local. We use local spices are, uh, from here, no imported. Just the paprika for the calabrese, that is Southern Italian uh, spicy pepper, fine grind. That one is coming from there because the flavor are uh, very unique. The truffle that we use in Salam Tartufo are from France, the black truffle, and the white truffle extract is from Alba, Italy. Then came the best part, the tasting. 
I haven't tried truffle. I'm not a big fan of mushrooms, but I'm willing to try it. And I've never seen the nostrano. Nostrano is amazing. My favorite. So, tartufo and nostrano. Did you try the andouille? I have not. You like spicy, right? Because I do. Like, I'm I like give the... you that to bring with it. It's very nice, it's incredible, you know. How do you pronounce it? Andouille. So I'm gonna go home and play with this and see yeah, what yeah, fun exactly. stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, put it on bread. We have some mozzarella, it's nice with that. It's great product, like carnivore peanut butter. Carnival peanut butter. <laughs> so we don't change our way because customer want it. We want that the customer go to Italy, come back here, and find the same experience. Mm. Very fresh. He has a pork ham. For all the other salami, we use the shoulder. This salami ham, so the part of the prosciutto. So you see the color is clear. If you cut a barolo, it's more dark. Also because the wine, but the meat is more clear, more delicate. Like when you slice prosciutto di Parma, you know, that delicate. Right. White wine, okay. cracked pepper. So, you know, simple, but that's what in north of Italy do. Uh, simple ingredient salami, good quality. Can I try one with the casing on? Yes, yes. Okay, so this the is same. the casing, yeah. has the mold. And actually, I like that, yeah. mold, you know? It reminds me even more Italy now that I tasted with you in Italy when I was a kid. Probably because I was just eating with the skin. It's really nice. It's nice. It is really nice. You it's know different. that you have a strange flavor. Accomplish the, the meat. Tartufo. Beef casing, but different size. The tartufo, we don't want to have a big salami tartufo because the flavor is so intense that you don't want to be a big bite. So usually, even in Italy, our salami, little salami with truffle. It's nice. It's not overwhelming because, like I said, I'm not a fan of mushrooms. What we do with our salami is exactly that. We balance very well. It's really nice. Yeah. This slice just reminds me of sitting on the porch of a winery in summer. Right. Which, of course, none of us have done for a year. <laughs> yeah, it's a yeah. wine outside with nice weather, cheese and salami. Yeah. Beautiful. I took the salumi from Alex and did some playing with food of my own. I made a pizza that was tartufo on one side and andouille on the other. I made andouille at deviled eggs and what I called California andouille shishuka. And I, of course, had several lunch plates with salami, cheese, and fresh vegetables. It was all blissful. Food is not just for fueling the body, and producing food is not just about making a living. Food, for me anyway, has much deeper meanings, and for Alex as well. There's something deeper that is motivating you to yeah. do this. And, yeah, and yeah, no, for sure it's family, business, we like to, to success, and doing a good job all together. You know, we came here in the United States for that, to do better and have a good life, a nice life. Uh, happy family stay together so that's what we do we want to eat a good salami ourselves before sell a product you know we want to make sure uh, we taste it it's great and now i think we reach a, a very 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 good product and uh, we're so happy about it and uh, the name you know is related to grandma so that's very special yeah it's uh, more than just a business for sure Having salami and cheese is the easiest thing and for us is a part of our life and now it's become part of life of our customer. Food is a combination of love and magic, isn't it? Yes, yes, exactly. Passion. The first person I give a salami is my daughter and I want to give her a good product, of course, the best product, the most health, the best quality. So that's what we do. That's what we do. When you want what's best for your loved ones, it's more than just a business. This is KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Father Ian, and I'm playing with food. 
You've been listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. Gary Eister composed our theme music. A special thanks to all our guests and contributors this week. I'm Carol Tangeman. Join us each Monday from 1 to 2 in the afternoon for more local stories. You can head to our website to learn more about what you heard today or to listen to past segments, kcbx.org. Thank you.